Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of January 28th, 2021. I'm Charles Hayne, writer for No Film School. I'm here with writer for No Film School, Kath Tolentino. Hello, good morning. Editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Writer for No Film School, Joe Light. Hi. And we're going to be talking about a remote Sundance. We are going to be talking about AMC theaters taking on a billion dollars in new capital. We're going to be talking about a huge out-of-nowhere announcement from Sony. We've got all that and a great question about resumes and exactly how honest they need to be this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our first topic this week is our first all-remote Sundance. I mean, there are events happening in Park City, but it is not the destination it was last year for, I I guess I should say obvious reasons, but if you haven't heard, there's a pandemic probably spread (laughs) at Sundance last year, we think. I mean, I don't think Sundance was a super spreader event, but it seems like there were some cases there already. I'm going to kick off the conversation by, I have a friend who works in marketing, and we were joking last summer about what Sundance could do to recreate the Sundance experience at home. And the best pitch we came up with was they should do a simultaneous everybody stands outside in the cold moment, where like Friday (laughs) at 8 p.m., everybody, if you're in a cold place, goes and stand outside. But if you're in like Houston, they should like find a refrigerator to stand in front of and put their feet in, in buckets. And we should all just stand outside in the cold with wet feet for an hour to really like give us that communal Sundancey experience once a day. <laughs> oh, even longer. I mean, wait in line for a long time. There is the reality, which is Sundance is launching a virtual version of the festival, which has the potential to maybe even be more inclusive. So we should talk about like what people are excited about, about this year's Sundance. I can't believe it's been a year since we were there. Charles feels like it's been 10 Joe, I want to hand it off to you because you're doing a lot of the Sundance coverage for No Film School this year. It's obviously going to be quite different than prior years, but um, you've covered festivals before with us and not with us. And uh, I want to hear what you are excited about, what's weird about this, (laughs) what's great about it, you know, and, and having not experienced much of it yet, but does it feel like it's going to have any more practical application to people who aren't able to get to Park City because that sort of changed, obviously? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What I'm finding is that it's much more relaxed, I think, and accessible. I haven't ever covered a a festival done this way uh, at this scale. So I'm finding that the platform so far has worked really well. I think there haven't been any hiccups in terms of like scheduling the movies that you want to see. I am a little bit nervous about day of how it will go, but yeah, I'm excited because there's just so much more flexibility in the movies that you can pick. If you miss one, you have other chances to see them with wider windows. I think they're doing like 48 hour windows. I don't want to be incorrect on that, but could you you describe a little bit more about how it's going to work? So basically what they've done as a pass holder, they've allowed you to, reserve as many movies as you want to in different slots as long as they don't overlap so you can't reserve like two movies that are premiering at six but both of those movies will then screen again from like 4 a.m the next day i think for several hours like a full day or two so you can watch that movie if you missed it anytime in that window 
So it's again, it's just more flexibility. If you if you were there, you would just wait in the line, maybe not get in the theater, which is like a terrible feeling. And then the other thing about being there, of course, is if you're there, you wait in the line, you don't get into the movie. You also didn't get to see something else during that time. So it was a huge waste. And you may have taken a cab out like an hour out to get to the other location. And then by the time you got there. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many like log jams of like getting screwed over with scheduling. So it eliminates that, right? You can watch it. You have a window to watch it. You yeah. can watch it in the window. If you miss it, there's other window opportunities. Yeah. And they are doing the live, they're they're doing the Q&As, which I think you can watch later as well. So again, if you miss that, you can catch up on it later. It just seems like this is the way it should be covered for press like forever, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but so. then if it's covered for press like that, that raises the question of like, well, who, like if we're going to let press do that, then shouldn't we let any like cinema fan in Winnipeg who can't travel to Park City also do it? Absolutely. Like, where does it, where, yeah. where do we put the I boundaries? Think should, I think we should. I don't know. Like, so many people just don't have the funds or the time to go to Sundance, spend all that money just to, like, watch some, maybe watch some movies. I mean, if you're an industry player, it's different because you have someone who's advocating for you and can get you all the passes that you need and get you all the meetings that you need. But, like, just for the average person, it's it's really an inaccessible festival. So this is a huge change. Mm-hmm. Whenever we cover it, one of the problems I confront is that many of you will not see these movies, don't know what they are, don't know who the people are involved in, what they're about, and you don't know when you're going to see them. So we're out there covering these movies for our audience of filmmakers and film watchers who are, and we're like, hey, this is cool because blah, blah. And it's like, well, I don't even know if I'm ever going to see that. And I think that the opportunity to open it up is great. And I actually don't think, you know, there's, we've talked about this funny Sundance phenomenon where everybody in LA flies out just to run into each other and say, or New York and LA, just to run out there and say like, hey, we should totally get together at Park City. Like, even though you live in the same city and you never see each other. And I think that that phenomenon is not going to go away. I think there's still going to be tons of people clamoring to be there because it's an event, because there are parties, because there are celebs, because there's press, because there's deals to be made. So I kind of think you can do both. Yeah. I mean, the the activations and the parties are always what a lot of people are going for anyway, to be there in person. So I think that that will thrive. (laughs) Absolutely. Just because it's such a unique environment. But as far as the movies themselves and getting to learn from people, I think this is a really interesting and exciting way to do it. Especially since like when you're a filmmaker and you're just coming up and you're applying to festivals, the advice that you get from people is always like, well, look at the films that have played at those festivals before. But if you're just starting out, it's likely that you haven't been to any of those festivals or ha- like haven't seen the types of films that they play. It's sort of this catch-22, right? Like the only way you can really understand what Sundance is like is to experience, go and experience Sundance. But a filmmaker just starting out probably hasn't done that yet, you know? Well, I mean, it's one of those classic examples where film industry advice is is catered around a certain set of assumptions about what your life is like. Like, I could certainly see that advice being given of like, think back to the last 10 years of festivals you've been to. Where are the festivals where you saw the movies you love the most? And like, if you're trying to break into film, you're like, I've been going to festivals for 10 years. Like, it costs <laughs> a lot of money to go to Berlin or Cannes or, you know, I mean, I, I give this example a lot, but like I... um. I went to a panel once and somebody was like, I know breaking into these industries hard. When I tried to get in, I knew no one. 
except my dad played tennis with the head of Paramount. And so <laughs> I got a meeting and it's like, well, then you knew someone like, like, and your dad played tennis with them. So like you're running in some circles. And so it's that kind of thing of like, even getting, even getting to swim in these worlds enough to get familiar enough with them to know like, oh, th- this movie I've made is a Sundance movie or this movie I've made isn't a Sundance movie requires a lot of capital. You know, there's a large ante to get into that. Whereas now a completely virtual Sundance means you can watch all of the Sundance movies this year and then you can decide, have I made a Sundance movie? Is this the right platform for the thing I am making? Or is it the wrong platform? And Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, is the pass $25? Uh, I don't think so. I think you, I'm not sure. Sorry, I'm not sure what the cost is for like individual films. I know that you can buy tickets. And I know also that they're doing those satellite screenings all throughout the US, which I yeah. think are. Those know, are all sold out in my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> I think they sold out pretty fast. I tried to get one in my neighborhood and they wouldn't even let me as as press. So uh, I think I think a lot of those small satellite theaters are kind of hoping for that boost. So hopefully that does well. But yeah, I'm well, sorry. I don't know that. There's also I- a limit. You can't sit that close to each other in the satellite screenings, right? So there's a limit mm-hmm. to the number of people. It's not just filling a 300 seat theater. It's like a smaller number of people in the theater, I believe. Yeah. If they were to continue to do something like that in the future, you could have money made all around the world in theaters because of Sundance, not just at Park City. Like that's a potential boon to the theater industry, right? Mm-hmm. To have satellite screenings. But the other thing, Charles, you mentioned, I, I apologize that I repeat myself on this point, but until I worked for no film school, I didn't attend Sundance. And as soon as I attended Sundance, I realized why the times I applied, I was like completely wrong about expectations and what it was and what goes there and why. And I've said like, there's this weird catch 22 that you were talking about, which is like, wow, I wish I had known, like it would have completely changed how I approached it. I probably wouldn't have applied with certain projects, et cetera. And yet that's not useful to filmmakers, like to younger me, because I'm not going to go to Sundance. Like it's, it's a, it's a big thing to do unless you can afford to find a way to get there and et cetera, et cetera. So I do think the potential here to learn about what is at the festivals and why and who the filmmakers are and the Q&As and what the events are is mm-hmm. huge. And I think I, I was watching that like Boots Riley How to Do Sundance video yesterday. I'm pretty sure that if you make an account, you can access any of those Q&As without paying any money. That to me seems really huge. That is like just a game changer for accessibility. George, going back to your note about like, yeah, I didn't go, last year was the first year that I went to Sundance because I had a friend who like happens to have a little bit of money and was like, don't worry, you could just stay in my house. I'll pay your way. It's fine. Without that, I wouldn't have gone because to me, it's like a huge spend. And one of the options that I had been looking into before this happened, my before my friend offered for me to stay in her house, was like someone told me about a fellowship that I could apply for, a quote unquote fellowship for emerging filmmakers where I could get my Sundance trip paid for and I would be given the title of like fellow at this house. But the exchange was that I would have to like essentially make all their food and wait in line for their tickets 
and quote unquote maybe catch a movie or two. I know. That's gross. I know. There (laughs) are people out there who are are duping young people, like people who've never been like just who who comes up with that idea and who I was so mad when I found out what it was. That is wild. And I had even like (laughs) sent them I was like Hi, I'm so interested in your fellowship. Attaches my portfolio. This is my experience. And then I, afterwards, I realized I was like, "Oh my god, dodged a bullet!" Like oh, awful. Man. That the thing is, like that. It's it sounds awful and bad, but it's actually not that crazy considering the way the industry, like the the version of opportunities, quote unquote, that are that are presented to people. Not a fan. Not a fan. Don't can do I, it. People. Can I offer a non-scammy way to get to Sundance? Yes. Um, I volunteered for like five years there. So that's my kind of pathway into the festival. My, I did have a friend that lives in Salt Lake, but I know as a volunteer, if you apply, they can provide housing for you. Um, you don't get paid, obviously, and the hours are kind of long and you do have to be in the cold, but you do get the opportunity to see the movies. You get to meet a lot of people. You get... Sometimes into parties, depends on, you know, how well you are kind of (laughs) uh, meeting people and kind of weaseling your way in there. But yeah, I think volunteering is a great opportunity for people to just get to know Sundance and get to see the films and and kind of get that whole experience. And what kind of like, do you remember what kind of hourly commitment it was? They have flexible schedules and then they have like, you could volunteer for one week or you can volunteer for two weeks. So obviously this is back when we were in a pandemic and hopefully when they were able to do the fest again, it reverts to this, but yeah, it was like eight hour shifts. So I would come in in the mornings. I worked in the, in the Mark, which was a great theater. I loved. Yeah. (laughs) And I would do like the lines for those hours. You'd get breaks. And then sometimes you'd get to like slip into the movie theater if there were seats and watch the film. And then, yeah, that was it. So it was really straightforward and easy and a great opportunity and experience, I think. Yeah, that's really good advice. I will also say I do a lot of industry panels and the class I teach and I'm bringing in people all the time to like tell the story of how they launched in the industry. And like volunteering at Sundance shows up a lot. Like Soderbergh hasn't been a guest in my class, but I know Soderbergh was uh, volunteered to drive for, I think, he was driving people back and forth the airport because he thought it was a great way to meet filmmakers. Like not only the years before Sex Lives, but apparently I think he also did that volunteering even the year Sex Lives um, premiered at Sundance, someone ah. was saying, which I find impressive. <laughs> That's and awesome. then, you know, like all sorts of other people, like we had a big publicist in who was like, oh yeah, I just volunteered at Sundance every year because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then one year I was in the publicity like area as a volunteer and I was like oh I could do this and now he's like one of the biggest publicists in film Mm -hmm. and you know like I think it is a you will end up there's a wide variety of tasks that Sundance needs doing as opposed to like taking a semester long internship which is a lot of free labor like two weeks of free labor in exchange for some passes and party invites is is probably a fair trade thank you for mentioning Salt Lake never forget you can stay in Salt Lake City yeah, uh, it is way cheaper to stay in Salt Lake City, uh, and the drive is like forty minutes up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And there are parking lots on the edge of town where there are shuttle stops, so you can like park out at the ski slopes way at the edge of town and t- just take a shuttle into town. So, mm-hmm. like, literally, I don't even think when I've stayed in Salt Lake, I've paid for parking in Park City. And yeah, it's a little weird driving down a mountain at two in the morning after getting <laughs> out of some screening, but 
it is, you know, I think we've paid like, I think in 2017 staying in Salt Lake with my buddy, I think we paid like $80 a night for a hotel room. Like Mm -hmm. it's Salt Lake City. It's not, you know, it is a big enough town that Sundance doesn't cause all of its prices to skyrocket. And then we also, we went and we saw the Mormon, um, they have a huge organ Mm -hmm. and it was cool. So you can do Salt Lake stuff during the day. That place is funny. Yeah. (laughs) I I got a tour of that place too. And they had, well, sorry, this is off topic of film, but just that whole the temple is a very strange place. Mm. Yeah, it's like beautiful. (laughs) I love Salt Lake personally. I like the weird arrangement of the city around that temple. Um, I have had some nightmarish drives up in the snow, but it's not a hard drive if the weather is fine. So yeah, I definitely agree with you, Charles. But before we switch topics, what, Joe, what are the movies that you're most looking forward to in the lineup? Good question. Ever since I saw Hereditary at Sundance when it premiered there, I'm like always kind of searching to <laughs> get that buzz back of that like amazing horror experience. So I tend to go for those horror films. So I'm excited for films like In the Earth. I'm excited for Censor. Uh, it's about, uh, it's set in the 80s in the UK, I believe, about a film censor that I don't want to spoil it, but I think crazy things happen. And then there's that wild-looking Nicolas Cage movie, Prisoners of the Ghostland, that I really want to see. <laughs> I can't wait for Nicolas Cage to decide to do like a nice, quiet indie drama with no, um, you know, blood. Insanity. Yeah, like his his Eternal Sunshine moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, no. uh, he really has been making some bold choices for the last thirty-five years. Yeah, and God bless yeah. him for it. That one has a warning for extreme violence and gore, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm excited to watch the shorts. That's what I'm going to watch. Oh like, yeah, yeah. I think they also like most of those shorts programs still have tickets available, whereas a lot of the features are sold out already. The shorts are a great way to get there and to experience it. It's I mean a great way. Like it's not like it's money in the bank that you're going to get there, but it's a cool opportunity aside from the features. And there's a lot of programs. Remember, there's also an indie episodic program. There's tons of things that aren't just feature films. At Sundance, it's always worth reminding everybody. We will have all Sundance coverage, or not all. We will have lots of Sundance coverage on filmschool.com from Joe and also from Oakley. We will also have some stuff on this very podcast. So stay tuned for that. All righty. Up next, the other big story going on right now is also theatrical. We are obviously still in a pandemic and... AMC, the world's biggest movie theater chain, has taken on nearly a billion dollars in new investment in order to stay afloat and keep moving forward because they still believe in the future of theaters. Uh, I've heard more than one theory that this pandemic is the end of theatrical and that theatrical will never be the same. I agree that theatrical will never be the same, but it is interesting not only that people who currently run studios are, are willing to keep doubling down on going forward with studios, but also that there are investors and lenders willing to keep betting on the future of the theatrical market. What's interesting for me, I don't follow the movie theater business as much as maybe I should, but until I read, the New York Times had a long interview with the CEO of AMC, and he is not a, you know, like the person who runs Regal is from a movie theater family. The person who runs AMC is not. The person who runs AMC is a, I guess the term is I don't know if journeyman is a term used outside of film, but like he's a journeyman CEO. Like he used to run a hotel. He ran the Philadelphia 76ers for a while. Like he's just a CEO who does CEOing at 
multiple different companies. He's been running AMC for about six years. And uh, sometimes because of that, because they lack the tradition, they're more willing to make different deals. And AMC famously has cut deals to shorten the theatrical window in exchange for direct revenue. Like Universal is going to pay AMC money because it's shortening its theatrical window before it releases it on home video. And that's that's kind of a bold play. So it, it looks like there might be some future left in the theatrical market. Yeah. I mean, we keep coming back to this because it's been the big topic of 2020 and bleeding into 2021. Um, theaters were on the decline. Quick recap for those of you who've already heard us talk about it a lot. I apologize. Theaters on the decline in general. It's been a challenging model. And then the pandemic hit and kind of like knocked it down so the question has been how's it going to get up off the mat or if it will at all and we've seen a lot of things happen and this is yet another major move to get up off the mat and keep going and i think a lot of us feel anecdotally that there will be a lot of interest in theaters once this pandemic at least calms down i don't know what we're even looking ends (laughs) what are we looking for at this point but this is definitely a big bet to say the least, that it's going to come back and work. As a film fan and a theater fan, it makes me happy. But I don't know. I'm not savvy to this kind of deal or this kind of debt. I don't I, like This is out of my understanding of like, how, how will this manifest and will it work? I don't know. Definitely feels a little risky. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about like, creative ways that theaters could bring people back. I love what you mentioned before about like this festival model, you know, is this a way that we could potentially, you know, if more festivals were screening at local theaters, that seems like it be, could be beneficial to both. But at the same time, that seems to work against this idea of like debuting at a festival and then having these windows and creating that element of scarcity but as a as an audience member, I'm all for it. You know, the more we can do to to bring bring stuff to theaters, great. One thing that I feel like we have never talked about is is there an option of bringing serialized content to theaters? Like, is that a possibility? Like, everyone's saying, "Oh, features are over. The future is TV. Everyone's watching serial content." I mean, back in the old days, people would go to theaters on a regular basis, like every weekend. And they would watch the new movie and they'd see the newsreel. Is that? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I tried to, ex- you know, I was explaining to my son because we were watching Looney Tunes and I was explaining to him that the they were part of basically a TV experience that happened in a theater before there was TV. So they were like, you'd get a little short, you'd watch the news, you'd watch a movie, you'd come in at some point during the day. I remember my grandfather telling me this. It's like you might miss the beginning of the movie, you get the end, you'd watch the stuff in between, then you'd watch the beginning of the movie, then you'd leave. But I think that um, I think it's an interesting idea, like a, a binge screening or something. Like when when something drops, theaters could have like you know we're gonna show, you know, do a marathon at this theater for two over the weekend. That what is a big show that drops like that uh, all at once? Stranger Things kind of thing. Um, that's a really interesting idea. I did want to go back before Joe and Charles weigh in again. There's a quote in here that I think is interesting from the, from Adam Aaron, the AMC CEO. 
he mentions specifically grateful to the world's medical communities for their heroic efforts to thwart the virus, welcome the commitment by the new Biden administration um, for a broad-based vaccination program. These are these quote these are um, I'm paraphrasing. So I think it's interesting that that they're doing this with the specific thought in mind of like political events. Like there's a new president, there are vaccines rolling out. We're hoping that they're going to get into more arms quickly. Uh, it's like they're just trying to stave off elimination until people can return. And it's just a weird moment, I think, to notice in history that like a theater chain is talking about who is just elected president and what's happening in the medical world Mm -hmm. so their business can survive. Isn't that weird in -hmm. general? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And Catherine, what you just said about serialized content being in theaters, it made me think of when that OJ Made in America docuseries actually premiered at Sundance in 2016 and people sat through the whole thing, which is what, seven hours, seven and a half hours with one intermission. So I think that people are willing to to do that, people do it already sitting in front of their TVs. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a reality. <laughs> people do it for Lord of the Rings marathons in theaters. Oh, God. I, <laughs> I mean, what I was disappointed about in all of this was the lack of creative thinking about exactly what you're talking about, Kath. Like, I feel like I've, I feel like 10 years ago when digital theaters first became a thing, there were so many pictures of like, and then we're going to do soccer games on Sunday afternoon. And then we're going to do like live opera events and, and, you know, live, you know, and serialized television events. And there hasn't, I don't know why that is no longer a big part of the conversation because like, I mean, obviously Game of Thrones season eight, was a disaster and and ruined people's memories of the show. But like before we knew it was a disaster, how come more theaters were not showing every episode of Game of Thrones live on Sunday night, like cutting a deal with HBO totally, so that HBO could get part of that revenue? Because, you know, so we have a theater at school where I teach and we allow students to book it for occasional events. We don't want to like run it out, uh, run the bulb out or whatever. And the number one thing that I would randomly like, I would be in stopping by and I'd stick my head in the, the theater and see what they were watching. Back in Game of Thrones days, there'd be a whole theater full of people watching Game of Thrones during that time. Absolutely. And I think that there could have been like, that's the exciting part of this is like AMC should be cutting a deal with Warners that's like, okay, you can do a shorter window, but we get, you know, whatever your number one show is, we also get to stream that on Sundays and split ticket revenue with you. And um, if I had to choose between binging all of the crown in my apartment, like alone. by myself, yeah, like for, and then feel totally crappy about myself four hours later versus <laughs> going to a theater once a week with all my friends hanging out and watching the show that I love, I would absolutely choose the latter. I would pay, I would pay $15 a week for the latter. Yeah. And I, to that point, I don't, there's two other things that it brings to mind. Like why, for, for example, there's gotta be money to be made on something like we're going to put every episode of a star Wars series up before the finale. You know, there would be so many people showing up in costumes, no less. And you could also do things like, you know, Sunday NFL Sunday morning, you know, I'm sure you'd sell out like all the bars do. So I don't I, I don't know if I don't know the answer. I'm sure it has to do with kind of like what the prior business model is and expanding what they do. Um, but there seems like so much opportunity to keep those businesses open. Yeah. And if you think about like Netflix 
you know, bent over backwards to get Roma into theaters. Netflix understands the importance of theaters. I think there's potential here. Once you get some creative thinkers into the room, you know. Yeah. And I think that most of the experimentation will come from little theaters like the Alamo chain and little one-off theaters in various towns. But then it'll be interesting to see if AMC can start to do some of that experimentation and if we can start to see that experimentation on the big chains and we can find a way, because what I still want is I want to be able to see a movie I'm excited about seeing on a Friday night in a movie theater. And what yep. happens in that movie theater Sunday afternoon or Monday night or Sunday night to help that happen is exciting to me. That's a huge amount of the money is made in just those those opening nights. Like how much do they make yeah, Monday Friday and during Saturday night? Yeah, what what are they why why not like sun yeah, exactly. Yeah, why not Sundance for a week? All right. Our next big piece of news is legitimately surprising news. So a little secret about the tech news industry. We often find out about things a couple days in advance. There's a thing called an embargo where we have to sign a document and the company is like, okay, you can't tell anybody about this, but here is what's coming. It's one of the fun things about writing about technology and film. I mean, this will happen with films too, is you'll get to watch a film a week before everybody else. You can write up your review ahead of time. Sony just dropped something with no embargo, which means, I mean, no embargo at our level. There's tiers to embargoes. Like I definitely am aware that we're mid-tier and that there's people who hear before us. Like every once in a while I'll see something drop and I'm like, oh, you found out like a week before I did. So there's tiers. Our tier did not get to know about this added end. Someone did. I'm sure there's some writer who already has their YouTube video up. But for the most of us, the the writers I've already talked to didn't hear about this one, which is crazy because it's very much in our wheelhouse. Sony dropped a new camera. It's the Alpha One, which is a whole new thing. Usually they're their naming convention has been Alpha 7 or Alpha 9, like A7S1, A7S2, a, A7R, uh, A9. So this is an A1, the Alpha 1. It's a $6,500 camera body. Even though it's like a little DSLR style body, it shoots 8K, 30 frames per second. It shoots 4K. It's a brand new sensor. It claims 15 stops of dynamic range. It is all of the crazy features you could possibly want. It is... Big news. It's especially big news for two reasons. One, for like three years, everyone was waiting on Sony to come out with an A7S III because the A7S II was the one that filmmakers really loved that you saw on all sorts of, you know, filmmaking projects because it had the video-centric features. And then they finally came out with an A7S III, I think, last July. And it we'd waited like three years for it. Like it was three years late in the quote-unquote refresh cycle we were expecting. And it came out and filmmakers were all happy. And then six months after that, they just came out with an Alpha One, which admittedly is twice the price, but it's still a very video-focused thing to come out with only six months later. Like, it feels a little bit like if you just bought an A7S III, you might be a little bummed. Now, again, it's twice the price. But, like, you know, I know some people who bought the 2019 um, Mac Towers, which are like $6,000. They're expensive. But And then like six months later, Apple was like, we're moving to M1 chips and we'll make no more Intel ever again. And if you bought one of the Intel Mac Towers, you're like, really? Six months later, you do this to me? So I imagine some Sony A7S III purchasers are in a weird mood this morning. It's a whole crazy volume of features that they have managed to pack into this camera. It is sort of nuts. Sony is on some sort of tear. 
Yeah, hearing you talk about that, that that's the kind of thing that makes me nervous. Like, I am still wondering if I can buy an A7S II. I'm like, is that is that camera just totally worthless now? Like, should I only be looking at getting something expensive? So there's two things. There's what do you want to shoot with? And do you want to rent it to other people? So one thing many, many people do is they try and buy a camera when it first comes out because your first 18 months or so are when you can get a lot of rental revenue out of a camera. So if you are like, oh, I'm I'm only going to use this like one weekend a month. I want to rent it out the other two or three weekends a month. That needs to be a newer camera. The rental rate on an A7S II right now is going to be relatively low and you're not going to get a lot back from it. But if you buy a brand new camera, if you bought an A7S III last August or if you bought the Alpha 1 in March when it launches, for the first 18 months or so, there'll be a really healthy rental. I mean, maybe 12 months at this point. The window's getting shorter. There'll be a heavy rental business. And like more than one person I know owns a camera that they effectively paid off in rentals. They bought it a year later. They had rented it so much. It was effectively free. And now they have this $4,000 thing that paid for itself that they get to shoot with whenever they want. And so, you know, there is certainly that argument for the newer gear. On the flip side, the DVX100 came out in 2003. And I have a friend who in 2013, 10 years after it came out, bought one because he was like, I like tape. Tape makes sense to me. I don't want digital files. Drove to West Virginia, spent several months shooting a documentary on it. And that documentary got in South by Southwest. He got an agent. He got a manager. He directed a uh, narrative feature all from buying a DVX 100, driving to West Virginia and staying with friends and shooting a documentary. So like, do you have to have the latest and greatest thing? No. Um, you do probably need a camera that shoots at least 4k now because we're starting to see 4k deliverables asked for by clients. You certainly do not have to have an 8k camera or you will lose your mind. There's still plenty of beautiful 4k cameras like the a7s II. And the a7S II is a great camera and it has amazing low light. And frankly, because the a7S III came out, you can probably get a great deal on an a7S II right now. But that great deal will only be then you own it and it's for shooting your work and it's not for trying to rent it out and get revenue for yourself. Will you occasionally run in, like if you're trying to do client work, will you occasionally run into a client who's like bummed? Probably not. In my experience, it's the very rare client who knows a lot about cameras. You know, they'll they'll say the buzzword they've read about. They'll be like, this shoots 4K, right? But beyond that, it's, you know, it's very rare you're going to run into clients that are like, you know, oh, well, this has to be A7S III only, the A7S II, I don't like its skin tones. You'll run into directors like that. But, you know, you're a director. You're not a, I don't know if you're trying to be a DP, but you're a director. This is for your projects. If If you like the way the A7S II looks, Go for it. I have a couple thoughts or questions for you, Charles, about this. Um, Sony skin tones are kind of a thing. Some people don't like them for that reason. What are? Do you know anything beyond the press? So release? the only thing announced is that. So I, I'm. I've never been a fan of Sony skin tones, and I also feel like Sony's greens are weird. Uh, however, Sony has put a lot of work into that in the last couple of years. And the newest generation of cameras, the starting with Sony Venice, Sony Venice is the first time. There's still some stuff that looks really Sony to me. The new season of The Crown is shot on Sony Venice. And I think it was episode one, about halfway through, I was like, they switched cameras. And I looked it up and I was like, oh, you switched from Alexa to Venice. You can still tell it's Sony. 
but it looks really, really good. I mean, if you like the new season of the crown with Diana, that's Sony Venice. So that was their new color science. And then they used that new color science on the FX nine, which came out about a year ago, the FX six, which came out last summer. And they are saying this is the first of the alpha cameras to use that color science called Cinetone. And so now this is an alpha camera and alpha means they're small little handheld cameras that are like stills video hybrids. Like these having to do, this is the first one that'll use Cinetone, which means it should be able to look as good as in terms of color reproduction, Sony Venice. This is a camera that's intended to be like, Oh, you're shooting a, a Sony Venice production. Well, this is the one you should buy as your C camera that you can use in your crash cam. And it should intercut pretty well with Venice. Now, the thing that still doesn't work for me in Venice, and this is probably just a taste thing, but the way rolling highlights look when there's mixed color temperatures, I still don't like that. When it's like a really hot blue backlight, I, I still feel like it looks very Sony to me, but the skin tones looked great in the new The Crown and everything I've seen from FX9 and FX6, the skin tones look way better than they used to. And those greens are looking way better. So theoretically, the Alpha One should be a step forward in that. Cool. Good answer. Uh, thorough answer. Other question. Is it, it's 8K. Um, we talked about how various companies achieve. It's 8.6K, I think. So it's like oversampled 8K. Yeah. So tell me or tell us about, you know, we talked about how Blackmagic made 12K work, like how they got to 12K. There's sometimes like, is it true 8K? Is there, is there anything going on there? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, it's all marketing for all yeah. of these camera companies, including Blackmagic, because for all right. of these cameras, you you know, there's not 8,000 red pixels, 8,000 blue pencils, and 8,000 green pencils. That's it's what I was like, looking you know, for, old, the yeah. Tell me about the pencils yeah. on this camera. It is, it's Sony, so it's still RGB bear pattern. It's the same pattern you see on pretty much every other camera except the Blackmagic 12K and Fuji, which uses X-Tran. So it's still an 8K that is a roughly 8.6K sensor. So if you went out and you shot like test patterns that are to measure resolution, it would probably come in somewhere between 6 and 7K. But at that point, it's so hard, you know. Because we don't even own 4K TV, or some of us do, but not everybody even owns a 4K TV that's even capable of delivering 4K native stuff, right? Yeah. Well, and also it depends on what you're watching. Like I have a 4K TV. When I'm watching a file off my home media server that I know is 4K, that's the only time it's probably really 4K. If you're streaming Netflix, sure, it's 4K, but they're going to downsample it at different times if the internet's really busy and stuff like that. So like it's always a variable sort of experience whether or not you get real 4k the bigger difference is actually high dynamic range the thing you can notice right really dramatically is the difference between a standard dynamic range file and a high dynamic range file that you can really see if you're working with a high dynamic range tv and this is 15 stops of latitude so that should be able to master a high dynamic range file really well but you know uh, the 13 stops of dynamic range you got in the a7s2 were also great <laughs> so you know, it's not like we went from five stops of dynamic range to 15. Like we already had really high dynamic range cameras. It's just making it even crazier. My last thought or question is Canon's 8K or other 8K on the market. The R5. Yeah. So Canon came out with the R5 last summer. Yeah. I have not shot it. Everyone I know has complained about it. I haven't shot it. So uh, every this is 100% hearsay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest that it is hearsay. But everyone I know who's shot something with the Canon R5 is like, ugh, this sucker overheats so much it's basically unusable. So um, 
it. So we're gonna have to have a I've, no film school shootout soon. Oh yeah, if if no film school wants to buy me an R five and an Alpha One, I will totally do an amazing shootout between the two cameras. This four thousand dollar <laughs> camera that has five star five hundred five star reviews, everyone you know says that it overheats and is unusable. Yeah, the R five is wow. like you know, I mean, because a lot of those times, a lot of times when you're looking at online reviews, it's first off, there's a lot of still shooters who love that camera. So if it's a still shooter, it's not as likely to overheat because you're not using the processor as dramatically often. If you're a video shooter, your camera is more likely to overheat because you're putting it through paces. The other thing you run into a lot when trying to compare it with uh, online reviews is the length of your shoot day. So like, is the R5 going to be great if you go out and you're just shooting like a half an hour or an hour long interview versus are you trying to go out and you're trying to shoot a full eight or 10 hour day on your production? The people I know who've bitched about the R5, it's only two people I know who shot with it, but the two people I know who went out and did shoots with it, they both were trying to do like a full day shoot, you know, an action sportsy thing at a sports field or whatever and they were like this camera is not up to what we wanted it to be up to to deliver what we were hoping it would now again that's eight hour days outside the camera isn't up to that but like a real camera should be oh, absolutely. like if you got the fx9 it would so it's one of those things it's tricky with film gear because you like online reviews are great and i look at them but i don't look at them too closely because like if your only purpose is stills you use the camera so differently than I'm going to use it. Or, you know, if you shoot just like, you know, you shoot a lot of video, but you're just like a nature shooter who'll go out and shoot for a couple hours at a time. Like that's a different need than the need I have. I need a camera that I show up on set and for eight hours, I don't think, is this camera going to overheat on me? It just delivers. And I'm worried about, do I have the menu settings right? I'm worried about, do I have my focus right? My aperture right? I'm not worried about, am I keeping the camera cool enough? So I think that's the difference that has led to the frustration. Again, not everybody has had this frustration, but I think that Sony has not had as many overheating complaints in general. So I think it'll be interesting to see what Sony does with this camera. It, it's also way more expensive than the R5 at $6,500 versus 4000 So they have to have done something to justify that. I don't know what it is, but they have to have done something. And I'm assuming... It is probably related to processing power and heat. That is my guess. I've learned so much. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Last up, we have an Actino Film School from Kath. Yeah. So I have a friend who has never worked in the film industry before. She's a recent graduate from a film program, like a college program. She's applying to be an assistant production office coordinator. And this is sort of like an entry-level job, but, you know, still requires a little bit of knowledge about how film works. Uh, and she uh, submitted her resume. She has some office experience that's non-film related. And then she has, like, a love of film. And they got back to her and they said, hey, do you have any experience with exhibit Gs and PRs and these other things? And my question is, when you're submitting a resume for a job that you're slightly underqualified for or haven't had any experience doing before, how honest are you in your application about that reality? It's a great question. I think there are multiple schools of thought on it. So I'll provide mine and my experiences, um, but I don't want to say that I'm advising because I don't even know if I'm the right person to advise on something like this. I always had this sort of approach when it came to industry stuff that it's like, what's the old phrase? It's better to ask forgiveness than permission, basically. 
And if you just have an opportunity to jump in, you jump in and you figure it out later. And I think one of the first experiences I had of that was when I was in undergrad, we had access to a camera that shot 16 millimeter and you had to prove that you knew how to use it before they let you take it out. And I was like, oh yeah, I totally know how to use it. And I had no idea. So I had to quickly try to figure out as best I could and then showed up for them, you know, at the cage as they called it to take it out and just kind of did my best to demonstrate some ability to use it. And it was good enough for them to hand it to me. And then I did my best with it. And, you know, that approach, I think is part of why I believe in no film school's kind of core mission, which is, hey, you got to figure something out on the fly, Google it, and maybe you'll get enough information that you can show up day one prepared. And I do feel like, I'm not just trying to weave in like a plug. I do feel like it's part of why I was attracted to working at no film school in the first place, because I think it can sort of be in your back pocket or your, you know, a tab on your browser where you're just like, shoot, how do I do that thing that I have to do tomorrow? And it's not going to help you do things and like trick everybody into thinking you're expert. But I think in general, if there's an opportunity, you should jump at it. Um, and then do your best to figure it out as you go and do some research in advance because the opportunities don't come often. And what's the other old thing um, that I feel like is attributed to the late great Robert Evans producer? Luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And I just, I also am a believer in that. Like you will maybe have a chance to show up. There will be a window and you see it and you jump in. And if it doesn't work, well, you know, I knew a guy who once said, you're going to get more turns at bat. I'm full of cliches and adages right now, but you're not going to, you know, you might whiff the first time, you know, you might, you're probably going to get more turns. Like it's not going to be your only turn, but it's oh, now I got another one. What's the you miss all the shots you don't take thing? <laughs> but it's like I keep going. I I just think that it's always better to take the shot, and if it doesn't work, you'll figure you'll you'll recover. And if you show up, you show up as a PA or maybe it's this particular role. Maybe it's a second AD, and everybody's like, "Oh my god, you have no idea what you're doing." I'll give you an example where it really didn't work out for me. I was a office PA on an indie shoot in New York and someone needed to drive the bus on the tech scout and the tech scout would have the director, the DP, a lot of keys from departments, all the biggest people, the main department heads working on this film. And it was not massive, but for me it was because I was an office PA and I was like, oh, I'll do it. Now, I had never driven a car in New York City before. I'd driven before, but I'd never driven in New York City. I'd never driven a car this size, certainly, in New York City. I had no idea where we were going. There was no GPS at the time because I'm ancient. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And it really didn't go well. And it became a joke for the rest of the production that like I was crazy and that I risked everyone's life driving around New York in this van on the tech scout. But I got to know everybody and, you know, I mean, we lived. So that's my approach. I don't know that it's always served me, but that's my long answer to the question. So I have a slightly different answer. And my slightly different answer is this. What I need when I am hiring people is I need to know they can deliver for me what they say they can deliver for me. And if you put yourself in a position where you are agreeing to deliver something for me and you do not deliver it, you only get one shot. Like I never give anyone two shots. Like 
and my best example of this is I had an intern and for some reason we needed to change in the office, we needed to change one of the, uh, door locks and, you know, I didn't even supervise this, but one of my employees was like, all right, can you go change this door lock? And the intern was like, absolutely. I can totally do that. That's fine. And he wandered to the front of the building. He went to the wrong door. He took apart the door <laughs> lock from the front of our office that locks our office up at night. He couldn't figure out how to put it back together. And then didn't tell any of us until we were locking up at night at eight o'clock and we discovered that he'd taken the front lock off the building. We had to call a night locksmith to put it back together. And like what I needed, all I needed from that intern was him to say, I actually don't feel comfortable with this. I don't know what I'm doing there. Charles, why are you telling like, this story about me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't think if I thought if I didn't use your name, you wouldn't know. So, like, I think that there's a beautiful thing in the film industry of fake it till you make it. I love that. I have certainly done jobs that were like 10% beyond my ability where I was like, I'm not 100% sure how I'm going to pull this off. And I've definitely bid jobs. I've bid so many jobs where I was like, oh my God, if we get this bid, I don't know how we're going to do it. But like, as I'm bidding it, I'm doing research and I'm talking to other people and I'm trying to figure it out. But for me, like, you know, to use your friend's specific example, if I was hiring for that position, the perfect response to that email would be, I, I've not actually filled out exhibits BGs in particular, but from my research online, I've looked at them and they're very similar to this thing I did at my last office job. So I'm confident if, if shown any pitfalls that I'll be able to handle it because it's exactly like this other thing I used to do. That's the kind of answer where I'm like, oh, you did research. You figured out what an exhibit G is. You checked and then you read it and then you've got a comparable skill. I'm like, oh, I will totally hire you. You have a comparable skill and you're honest about your limitations. Yes, mm -hmm. That's the key. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're putting yourself in a situation where you're saying you know how to do a thing, I have done that once or twice. I can't think of the exact examples, but there are definitely one or two times where I look back and I'm like, you know, I didn't know how to do that thing that I said I knew how to do. And those people were never clients again. In fact, 10 years later, I bumped into one of them at a taco shop in LA and it was like the most awkward thing because we both knew how badly I had done on that job. And yet we were like in line next to each other getting tacos and <laughs> it was so awkward. It was like more yeah. awkward than running into an ex at their wedding. It was like unbearable because I had exaggerated my, I mean, this exaggerated my skill sets wrong. I'd agreed to do a thing that was beyond my ability and I should have just been honest that it was beyond my ability. So yeah, I mean, that's my take on it is that like what I need is I need people who have a good self-assessment of what their skills are and are honest about the limitations of it. I do think it's good to push yourself and to like take a risk and be like, oh, maybe this thing 10% beyond me, I can, I can take a swing at like, because that's the only way you ever move up. But I think that taking swings at something like 550,000% beyond you is a recipe to not turn that job into a long-term relationship. It's totally worth keeping in mind that fake it till you make it can only work under certain circumstances. Like you need, <clears throat> you need to be able to be confident. I think like Charles said that you can get like 75% of the way there. Like if you're totally clueless, you're in trouble, but still sometimes that's the opportunity you get. So I would still advise that you shoot your shot. I think the situation he outlined, I don't know what you guys think, but to me, the like the guy saying he could change the lock, that's like a high risk, super low reward. Like if you say you can <laughs> right, like if you say you can do the lock thing, like you're you're volunteering yourself to do something that's that's extremely important, but and maybe my tech scout thing was that too, but it just wasn't from my perspective. But I think from his from that guy's perspective, that intern, like that can go really poorly, but if it goes well, it's not like 
you're getting all that much out of it. It's not like you get to shoot on 16 for the first time or, you know, you get to meet anybody new. (laughs) All you can do is screw that up, basically. It's so important to to know when to ask for help. Like it's that's at any stage, like once you have the ability to be able to ask for help without feeling like it's some mark on your self-worth or some like piece of evidence that you're not actually capable or whatever. But that's so important because like that is what a lot of managers need is for you to be able to speak up about what your limitations are in a non-self-deprecating way, you know. That's just great, great advice in all situations, but in all things. And that's why I sort of also add that, like, ask for forgiveness or like you mentioned or or Charles mentioned something that I would throw in there always for everybody is like, be honest about what you feel you can do or can't do. Um, Joe, do you have thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, I think there definitely is a, a that middle ground. I have had friends who maybe didn't know how to work in Premiere, said they did, and then just learned it really, really quickly. <laughs> um, but they did the work to actually be able to deliver on the thing that they said that they could do by, you know, learning about it and doing that and putting that work in. But if yeah. you if you just say that you can do it and then just show up on the day. <laughs> and, and you haven't done that work, then you're in trouble. So I think it is it is a matter of knowing your limitations, acknowledging when they're there, being honest about them. But if you can maybe like cram really quickly and learn, figure something out, then maybe that's also an option. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, I've definitely done that thing too, where I've been like, it's even just for like a test, you'll be like, I think I can wing it. And then you're like, I'll cram. Uh, no, I'm not going to cram. I'm just going to show up and do my best. And then you crash and burn. And you sometimes you learn from crashing and burning. Sometimes you don't. I guess it depends on your personality. But yeah, I, I think opportunities are important to take seriously as like every opportunity you get, you have to really look at seriously. If you really want to work in this particular field, because there's a lot of applicants for every opportunity. So if someone's looking at you seriously, you have to try to figure out how to get the square peg in the round hole there because um, you never know. Like it just might be the last one for a while at least. Thanks everybody for listening. That's been this episode of the No Film School podcast. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, head over to nofilmschool.com, read about all these stories and more. We will have Sundance coverage up this week, courtesy of editor-at-large Joe Light as well as Oakley Anderson Moore. And I really want to let everybody know about an interview that is available on our podcast now that I did with Frank Oz and Derek Delgadio for In and of Itself, their show. It was a live stage show. It is now streaming on Hulu. It's amazing. It's worth seeing. It's an experience. And I found speaking to Frank and Derek to be enlightening and fascinating. So I highly recommend it. It was really fun. And Frank Oz is like a living legend. I'm Catherine Tolentino, filmmaker, uh, producer. Uh, My short film Parachute is online uh, on Short of the Week. And you can see my webpage at catherinetolentino.com or uh, follow us on Instagram at my production company, Instagram at borderwoman.pictures. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Joe underscore lightly and looking forward to getting a bunch of Sundance coverage up this week. I'm Charles Hayne. You can find me at uh, 
Charles Hain on Instagram and Charles Hain on Twitter. Although my tweets are all political and not filmmaking related usually. All right. Thanks so much for listening. 